Hello and welcome to Thinking Religion. I'm Thomas Whitley. I'm Sam Harrelson, and we have a special guest this week. Uh, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. I don't. I don't want to speak for them. <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, I'm Chris <laughs> Frolingos, and uh, I'm delighted to be on the pod. Well, well, thank you, Chris. Uh, so, Chris Frolingos is a professor at Michigan State, and he's written a, a fantastic new book that Thomas and I have both read, uh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, which is is. I'm not going to say it's a curse word that I use, but Jesus, Mary, <laughs> Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, family trouble in the Emphasis Gospels, and I, I think it's a, a fantastic collection. So we're, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some uh, some some current events as well. But uh, we're so excited to have you, Chris. So thanks for thanks yeah, for joining well, th- us. Yeah, thanks again for having me, and thank you for um, reading the book. It's uh, it uh, it's very gratifying to have uh, good readers like you guys. Yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, Really interesting, and I know. So, Thomas, you're you're having a party at your house. Yeah, there's a party at my house. But obviously, I mean, <laughs> who would not choose this podcast over a party <laughs> any day of the week? Uh, and, and, and you know, if, if, I've talked about this a little bit in the show before. My my office now, I'm a new house. Um, overlooks our our screened in porch, which overlooks the backyard. And so the the patio is or the party's on the screened in porch here. I'm you know looking at the back of the bar, so I can see all my bourbon from the gla- <laughs> from the you know the window here. So. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, might be a little short show tonight, so we can we can go out and and uh, have an after party. Um, so, uh, Chris, is there anything um, that you particularly want um, the listeners to know about you? Um, we'll throw out if you if you're okay with it at the end of the show. We'll make sure we throw out your Twitter handle uh, so the people can follow you on oh, there. That'd be great. Uh, yeah, no, I, um, so, uh, just kind of, uh, uh, my academic and, um, and professional interests. I, uh, I was, uh, trained at, uh, UNC, um, Bart Ehrman was my, uh, dissertation advisor, um, and so, so that's funny because one of the questions I have comes from his new book, Jesus Before the Gospels. Right. Yes. Yeah. So. Oh, good, good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was. Uh, he came up to um, MSU uh, in the spring, um, and that was really wonderful uh, to to have him here. And um, for one of my classes, I teach courses in um, early Christianity. I also teach an intro to biblical literature course, which uh, looks at the Jewish scriptures and the order of the uh, of the Tanakh of the Jewish Bible, as well as um, the Christian New Testament. Um, but for one of my seminars, uh, he came in and talked about that book with my undergraduate. So we'd spent uh, three or four weeks going through the chapters in that book, and um, they had a chance to ask the author uh, directly questions that they had. And um, it was it was it was wonderful to see uh, and to be a part of. Um, so that's that's a little bit about me. I've been I've been here. I was uh, saying earlier. I've been here at MSU for um, sixteen, seventeen years now, and um, I really like teaching in a large public uh, university. Um, my students um, come from uh, many different backgrounds. Many of my students are first generation college students, um, and uh, I I find that. Uh, in in my classes, um, you can really see uh, the the value of education in the humanities and the liberal arts, um, and I I feel very lucky to uh, to be able to do that. So that's that's a little bit about me. Yeah, that's great. That, that's something we we talk about on the show often is is kind of the the liberal arts 
you know, and, and, and kind of the, the hidden value of studying that and, and why that's such an important thing, regardless of what you're going to do. And I know both Thomas and I come from that kind of a background, but, um, you know, it's, especially at, at, at like a large state university, I think that's, that's, you know, so fantastic that we still have, um, you know, those departments that are, are vibrant and doing such great work. So, so thank oh, you. Well, sure. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> All right. Well, so, um, yeah, so, so we got Chris on the show. We've been trying to get this worked out for a couple of weeks, but one of the things we want to talk about was the book uh, that's just come out, Jesus, Mary, Joseph. It's, it's timely for a number of reasons. And for those of you that may not know, you can't, you know, generally time these things to hit when you want them to, you know, sometimes a publisher knows a book is coming like, Oh, this would be good to, you know, come out around Easter or something. And sometimes they can, they can do that, but you, you know, generally can't, it just comes out when the process, you know, um, when it's finished and it's ready to, to get out. And, you know, I think it's great that it's come out now because I think it's really, um, good and interesting for uh, thinking about, um, you know, as people are going into the Advent season and then Christmas after that and think, you know, they're going to be doing a lot more thinking about Jesus as a child and Mary and Joseph, uh, which obviously you talk a lot about in the book. Um, but then it's also kind of hit on current events, too. I know. Weirdly. With what's going on with, with Roy Moore. Right. And so it's just kind of perfect storm for you, which I know is um, it's great. Like it doesn't happen. You, you can't try to make it happen. Um but so so I think that that's kind of really exciting for you uh, having that having that happen. So, you know, maybe talk a little bit about if you, you know, just kind of give us a brief intro to the book. I mean, we've read it. Our listeners haven't. But of course, we'll have a link in the show notes for it. But like a brief intro and then kind of what if if they if your readers could take away one Ooh. thing. Uh, what do you hope that they would take away? From okay, yeah, I, uh, um, I hope, yeah, I hope that we do get a chance to come back to um, talk a little bit about Roy Moore and his defenders. I mean, um, as always, events kind of over. Well, you, yeah, you can go ahead and, go oh, ahead and do well, that now yeah, if you want I'd to. Like you to, want to I mean, I'd like that. to hear what you what uh, what you guys think about this too. I mean, I was I was <laughs> going to say events yeah. uh, overtake us. I mean, the news cycle uh, is remarkable uh, how 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 rapidly things change. And there's a different person in the box today, and uh, it. Um, I, I you, just, I, I would want to say, and I and I know I'm, I'm sure you guys agree with me on this that, that that the the important part of the Roy Moore Roy Moore story um, is uh, what these victims, uh, uh, the the alleged victims, are going through, and the kind of courage it takes to come out and. And speak about these things. I was just, um, I was left speechless uh, after the the um, the press conference on Monday with the the fourth um, uh, woman who uh, gave a gave this this news conference, and and she she could barely get through it. She was so overwhelmed with emotion, and then ticking off the the two or three people that she was able to bring herself to to to. Um, share what had happened, um, with, and, um, and then all, all of a sudden, uh, having to, to tell the world about these things. So, um, I mean, I, I was glad to be able to, to write a little bit, um, about what is a, what is a peripheral issue, but maybe, maybe we can come, we can come back to that. Let me just say, uh, just briefly about the, the book. I, I really like the question, like, what is the one thing to take away? Um, because it 
it forces me to to think about what what I think is valuable about the book. And so what I would say is this. Um, it's a chance for readers, uh, I think, to, to reflect on uh, just how little we know and understand um, about, about the world around us and, and how that um, the sense of the limits of what we understand and know, uh, how that sense is amplified in um, the most intimate relationships we have with those people that we call family and friends, the people closest to us, um, and, and how we often have to act on the basis of imperfect knowledge. Uh, but it is through that acting that, that we create uh, something like a family and something like friendship. And I, um, it wasn't what I expected when I started reading these stories and taking them seriously, but um, that that was the end result. Uh, so that's what I hope that readers would come away with it. It's a story about an unusual family, but um, somehow in these stories, we see uh, human beings thinking about uh, about what they know and what they don't, and and um, and uh, and how how you have to you have to act sometimes without as much knowledge as you'd like. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating how you kind of, and I guess this kind of correlates as well with the current events situation. Mm. But uh, I thought it was fascinating how you you wrapped the the stories, which in this case you're, you're talking mostly about uh, the infancy gospel of Thomas and the proto gospel of, of James um, for for people who uh, haven't seen the book. Yes, which, which are you know two really interesting, but but both very different books but you kind of wrap them under this um kind of like spectacle narrative or, or kind of a, a drama of knowledge mm -hmm. and i really liked uh that, that framing of, of both of those uh texts as, as something that was you know not just gospels that didn't make it into the canon and therefore aren't valid to read um whether you're a, you know a modern day christian or uh, a New Testament scholar or someone who's looking to, you know, sort of uh, understand how and, and why first and second and third century Christianities really kind of, you know, took off. Um, but I, I, I love that idea of drama of knowledge. And I thought that was a, a nice touch there. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, that's, so that's something that I picked up from reading scholarship on the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so a, a scholar named Mayer Sternberg uh, develops develops this idea in a, in a very dense but really rewarding book on the poetics of biblical narrative. Um, and it was, it was in working through that text that I started to think about these stories differently. If, if I can, I, I, I want to say a little bit about the sources I'm working with um, in the book because um, I think that they're, uh, I think they're important and the book is really of a, a book-length case for their importance, um, but they've they've mostly been kind of sidelined. Uh, so yeah, 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 definitely. I, I was hoping you would definitely uh, highlight that and, and talk about that as well. Okay, yeah. The two so the two sources at the heart of the book are, um, as you say, the infancy gospel of Thomas uh, and the proto gospel of James. Uh, the infancy gospel of Thomas uh, was probably written uh, hundred to one hundred and fifty years. Um, after 
the Gospels of the New Testament. And um, as the title suggests, it contains stories about Jesus as a child. Um, the name Thomas is associated with the book because the uh, stories are uh, recorded by Thomas the Israelite. That's at least in the kind of the prologue to the book, although it's not clear that that was original to the Gospels. But we work with that, that title anyways. Um, the other one, the Proto-Gospel of James, has a uh, stranger title. Um, and uh, by Proto-Gospel, uh, the title is meant to suggest a, a kind of um, prequel to the Gospels of the New Testament, especially the uh, nativity stories in, in Matthew and Luke. And um, this Gospel is really focused on uh, Mary, for the first part at least. Um, and then we get in the middle of the gospel the the story of, of when Mary met Joseph. Um, and uh, the rest of the gospel um, unfolds, kind of incorporating some, some details that are known from Matthew and Luke and other new details. We get a story of the birth of Jesus in a cave. Um, it's a very unusual birth. There's a dark cloud that passes over the cave and then a bright light. And then as the light dims, uh, an infant appears um, breastfeeding uh, from Mary. Uh, and then the, the gospel ends with the uh, murder of uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, the, the cousin of, of Jesus, um, in the temple in Jerusalem. So those are kind of quick summaries of these Gospels. Mostly, they've been understood as um, uh, kind of a biographical filling in the gaps uh, uh, sources. So they reflect the imaginations of second and third century Christians who know stories about Jesus and Mary from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John but want to fill in the blank spaces. Um, some scholars have taken these gospels seriously. Uh, there's been work on the manuscript traditions of these gospels. Um, other sc scholars have talked about the way these gospels portray the central characters. Uh, the proto-gospel of James has been viewed as a kind of uh, early Hagia hagiographical treatment of Mary, an early kind of saint's life treatment of Mary. But the infancy gospel of Thomas, um, which includes uh, uh, these childhood stories about Jesus, has never really gained traction. Um, partly, uh, well, pro uh, not just partly, I'd say mostly because of the rather unflattering portrayal it offers of, of Jesus as a child. <laughs> right. Um, so, <laughs> which is what I think makes it so interesting, right? It's, it's so much more interesting because it's not what we typically get. So well, like when I was, you know, I did my PhD at FSU. So when I was teaching there, uh, teaching New Testament, I always used the infancy gospel of Thomas. And, you know, the students were just kind of, yeah, their what minds kind of reaction were blown. You, you know, the ones that grew up in church. Well, I mean, for the most part, it's like, well, that's, I guess that's interesting. You know, the, the kind of, the feeling was, I guess that's interesting 
but that's not really Jesus, right? It's, it's clearly not, you know, it's clearly somebody just making stories up and, and well, of course, yeah, it's not an it, eyewitness it, account, it make it but the neither Bible, is the nativity yeah. story that we get in right. Luke or right. Matthew. Right? right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, I mean, I, so I know that when I, when I first started teaching, um, and this may be the way the uh, true for a lot of people who do early Christianity and New Testament that um, you kind of pull out the infancy gospel of Thomas when you want to wake the students up a little bit and uh, because that because right. the stories are so bizarre if I can give you uh, one one example um, uh, G- uh, Jesus is walking through his village at the age of uh, five or six and another child runs down the street and bumps into him. And it makes the child Jesus angry, and he turns around and curses the kid who bumped into him, and the kid falls over dead. Uh, And, you know, I mean, anybody who's seen five or six-year-olds on the playground (laughs) knows that this is the kind of thing that happens all the time. They don't know how to steer yet. They just, they run into each other constantly. I've got a seven-year-old, and yep, that's exactly what I Yep. So um, it seems excessive, um, to say the least. Uh, and the follow-up to it is that the uh, the parents of the of the child and the villagers complain to Joseph and say, "If you can't teach your kid uh, Jesus, you know how to bless rather than curse, you've got to leave the village." Um, so it's a it's a it's a strange story. Um, but it wasn't until I started uh, taking these gospels seriously that I started to think about the family dynamics yeah. um, and the social dynamics that are being narrated in these stories. Yeah, um, and that and that's right, kind of yes. the main point, right? I mean, your your whole point is is that you would prefer them to be known as right. family gospels, um, which is also interesting that your subtitle is "Family Trouble in the Infancy Gospels." You know, because you still use infancy gospels there, but you kind of have to, right? Or else nobody's going to, you know, get what you're what you're going for. But that's kind of one of your main points in the book is that is that these should be understood as family gospels, and they give us a glimpse not just into. Um, and you can hear the studio audience <laughs> is going <life>. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it gives you gives you you know insight into how early Christians not just not just how they thought about you know the the a young Jesus you know, kind of the time period between the nativity scene and uh, the scene we get in Luke when he's at the temple when he's 12, uh, but also giving insight into how some early Christians were thinking about the the fuller family aspect and, and what that, you know, possibly looked like if you had a child like Jesus, if you kind of extrapolate backwards uh, from what you have um, in the yeah, canonical I, Yeah, I mean, you put that so nicely. I, the one childhood story that's found in the canonical Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke, is the story that concludes the infancy gospel of Thomas. So it's the same story. The versions are a little bit different, but not much. But I think that if uh, modern-day readers of the New Testament read that story closely, uh, they would have a lot of questions because um, it's a story that that ends um, in, in, a, in a kind of unresolved place. So in this story, Jesus is 12 years old and his parents take him up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Uh, and um, they leave, the parents leave, and they realize um, on their way back to uh, Nazareth, presumably, that they, they don't have Jesus with them. <laughs> uh, and, 
But it's not they, they, three days they, later, they right? They look around for him. They can't find him. And three days later, they arrive at the temple in Jerusalem, and there he is. Um, so a lot of the details in the story, I mean, have been really studied to death. Uh, there's no question. But I think what gets missed in it is just uh, uh, the the kind of risk taken in telling that kind of that kind of story. And by risk here, I mean um, simply the willingness to depict what is, I think, the lot of most of most human families that that you don't always know. <laughs> What's going on in the head and the heart of those of the people that you're closest to? And in this case, Mary and Joseph, not only did they not understand what Jesus was doing or saying in the temple, they didn't even know where he was. <laughs> uh, right. So it's it. I mean, it just seems to me that in a in a in a, a kind of uh, across several layers, the story is suggesting some things about um, human relationships that um, they, not, I wouldn't want to say they're profound, but they're on target. Um, the kinds of things that, uh, that uh, uh, constantly um, show up in, uh, in just kind of everyday, ordinary uh, relationships. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was so interesting. So my, the first sermon I ever gave when I was, when I was 13 was about Jesus as a, a young person. And <laughs> I remember I, I was using a, a picture of Kurt Cobain from the band Nirvana as a prop for some reason. <laughs> um, yeah. And I was like, you know, course, we, we looked at these course. people because you all don't give us an example of what we should be doing when we're teenagers. And you're, you're trying to say like, well, you know, when you get 30, think about who you're going to be. I, I grew up very uh, Baptist and, and Southern Baptist. Mm. So, mm. um, you know, look, looking back on that sermon and <laughs> kind of how things went and thinking about how, how you know, you, you sort of reframe these as family gospels. I, I think that's a, a, a fantastic um, thread to, to kind of follow. But I, I guess one of my other questions um, had to do with, with the way that uh, both uh, the infancy gospel of Thomas and uh, part of gospel of James use Introtextual characters and extra textual, extra textual characters mm -hmm. um, to to sort of frame the story, and and some of those are, are familiar to the audience and some might not be, um, and and I, I think it's a very clever device that that you know that the writers of these texts are using, and I, and like you say, I don't think it's it's literature per se because it's not these aren't written for publication; these are written for very specific audiences. And now we've, mm -hmm. we've interpreted these, uh, you know, uh, thousands of years later on, on a mm -hmm. different level. But um, I, I think that's a, a, a very interesting thread that we, we, we all need to, to pull on a little bit more. Uh, thanks. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, um, my, my view of these, of these gospels uh, started to change when I started. Um, I mean, I have to say when I started listening um, seriously to the reactions of my students, which is why I asked uh, Thomas about that um, earlier. Uh, th their kind of bafflement, their their puzzle puzzlement at the at the stories, um, uh, forced me to to think a little bit more about well, um, what what kind of reaction are these are these stories trying to get? Um, if they're asking the audience to uh, empathize with the characters, uh, 
um, then then they're they're really doing a pretty effective job of doing that because if by the end of the infancy gospel of Thomas you're puzzled by the behavior of Jesus, uh, then you're no different than Mary and Joseph in the story. They don't they really don't have any idea um, why he's done the things he's done <laughs> right. um, or who or who he is. Yeah. Uh, and I felt like there was something similar going on in the proto-gospel of James, which um, just to expand on that a little bit more, I mean, it really focuses on the relationship of, of Mary and Joseph before the arrival of Jesus. And in this gospel, um, the Annunciation takes place. So Gabriel shows up and tells Mary she's going to become pregnant. Um, but Mary forgets the news. And so she realizes uh, that she's become pregnant a, a few days later, and she's fearful of it. And then Joseph, who's been away building, comes back and sees Mary, and he's out of his mind with um, anxiety and, uh, and anger. Um, and yet, these two people who don't really understand what's going on um, – through the rest of the gospel, stick together. They face a life and death ordeal, and um, they don't abandon one another. They stick together, uh, and I, I just think in both of these in both of these accounts, um, uh, there there's something uh, uh, I don't know humane in in these portrayals. Um, yeah. And I don't think they deserve the kind of cartoonish reputation they have, right? Amongst right, because they, they become kind of uh, punchlines, you know. And, and that's not, right. not saying that that Bart Ehrman uses them for for those types of stories, you know. But I, I listen to a lot of uh, the Great Lecture uh, series on on Audible, and yes, uh, yes, yeah. Professor Ehrman is, is a. I, I've listened to every single thing he's ever done on on that. Um, Series and he, you know he'll, he'll frequently reference those when he's trying to make a point about canonical New Testament books, um, kind of not not in a jokey way, but in a you know kind of a well they they didn't make it because of this, and a lot of it has to do with with kind of that cartoonish nature as you say. Um, so that's right, uh, that's right. And I, if I could if I could just say one more word about that, they they're really they're really useful um, for people like. Uh, uh, for scholars like Bart, when they're when they're talking about the historical Jesus, because they want to make the point that Christians made up stories um, about Jesus in the early period, and so here are two examples that almost any um, modern uh, audience member is going to uh, see right away. These two examples don't really preserve anything of historical value. And yet they were written by ancient Christians for other ancient Christians. So if that was going on in these two Gospels that didn't make it into the Christian New Testament, is it possible that that similar, similar uh, uh, thing was happened with the writing of the Gospels that, that were included? So they're illustrative in that way. But um, as you say, I worry it kind of reduces them to, as, as you put it, punchlines. Yeah. Or, or, I mean, even, I mean, I, I know Thomas asked this question earlier, but in, in our document that we're sharing. But uh, when, when you look at something like the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, and, and not to take away from Mary, and we should talk about this with the current situation um, that we're going through with uh, Judge Rory Moore and, and that whole thing. Yes. But with, with the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, and maybe we can get to that after this question, 
do you think early Christians were sort of less concerned with the goodness or, or the ethical mm. supremacy of, of this kind of Superman, Jesus, baby, you know, that, that we, <laughs> that we have now that, that, you know, never sinned and, and new Swahili. Right. Yeah, exactly. Golden fleece diaper. Yeah. That, I, I think that's a fantastic question. And I think it's been understudied. Um, the, the, um, the, the book that comes to mind for me is, um, uh, Jeffrey Syker's book, uh, that was uh, just published in, in 2015. Um, and the title, uh, Jesus' sin and perfection in early Christianity um, really sums it up. And his argument is that um, uh, it that it was not uh, the innocence, the perfection of Jesus was not assumed. That it was something that was created as uh, Christians reflected on the death of Jesus, the meaning of the death of Jesus, and uh, started to talk about Jesus's death. Um, uh, in, in connection to the uh, unblemished lamb of the Passover and the scapegoat and sacrificial goat of Yom Kippur. So without, um, without stealing too much of, uh, of the Psyker's Thunder in that book, which I, I really recommend people to read, it, um, it just opens up the question um, precisely the way that you, that you put it, Sam. Like, when, when is it that Christians started to think about Jesus as a perfect being. Um, clearly, the writers of the infancy gospel, who, whoever they were, uh, collected stories that must have been told um, by generations before, uh, did not make that assumption about Jesus. Well, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's, that would seem clear in these texts, but I also think um, the thing that I like that you've talked about here already, and you've done in the book some, is drawing the connections back to the canonical text because that's what people are familiar with. But I think using these texts to help you know people that are familiar with the canonical gospels to read them in a new light, because I think when you read many of the canonical gospels, I mean, you know, if you you know, longtime listeners of the show know that clearly mm. Mark is my favorite gospel. If you got through the whole <laughs> bracket right. challenge, you know, Mark is my favorite gospel. Right. And one uh, of my favorite scenes is, you know, he's, um, you know, they're yes. stressed out in the boat on the sea and Jesus is walking toward them and, right. and he intended to pass them by. Right. And you get and you know, this one of you talk about the um, the uh, scene at Cana where, you know, Mary is like, you know, they're out right, of mind. And right, he's like, what right. does it have to do with me? You know, so all these all these stories that you know, a lot of readers have been conditioned that to read it in a certain way, because clearly Jesus has to be perfect and you know completely divine and, and all good and the way that we understand good. And I think that uh, one of the benefits of, of your text is maybe pushing some people to think of this question of you know when did we really begin to when you know when did you know, Christians as a whole really begin to think it was important to understand uh, Jesus as one fully divine which you get that you know and um, you're starting mm-hmm. to get some of that in John obviously but but then also even then beyond that uh, perfect right and we do get um, where do we get one verse maybe in Philippians is that right yeah. Um, but that's about it, right? So there's, it's not like there's this constant theme throughout even the canonical New Testament that Jesus is perfect. And, and one little note, uh, I really appreciated the cover art for your book, and and um, it's the it's the same cover art that's for right, that's uh, right. Cyprus yeah, as well. 
it's the same image on there. Yeah, and, and for those of you that don't know, it's Max Ernst, the virgin spanking the Christ child, which is just fantastic. And, and it obviously works really well for yours, and it sounds like it works really it well did. for it did. Uh, his I, book I think as it well. does for both. And I, um, I wish that I had read uh, Syker's book um, before I had finished my writing my own because um, I really like what he has to say about the infancy gospels or the family gospels in in his book but the 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 book as a whole is is fantastic yeah that um that cover image is is uh i i mean i i i think the only way to describe it is as is as provocative um what as as uh and as controversial as the kind of the focus of the the image is which has uh as as you said, Mary spanking this uh, three or four year old uh, naked Jesus. Um, what what really uh, attracts me about the image is the is the the window in the background where you see these three witnesses looking through the window, um, and it just seemed to me to really capture the kind of the act of imagination that um, these these uh, family gospels do fill in gaps and they tell us that the the early christians who told these stories and wanted to know more about the 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 holy family the holy household yeah. uh, they were they were just imagining the same the same questions that our readers today might have what was going yeah, on yeah it's like us looking into so, those gospels and or those texts and saying like that's well, right. what's going on there with with that family yeah and uh, yeah exactly. i love that so okay so yeah. we we have just a few minutes left, but okay, okay. we want we don't want to keep you too long. But we we have to talk about the current situation in our uh, sort of political landscape because you you write a a, a fascinating I, I think really um, uh, nail on the head article about Thank yeah you that, very I mean much. It, it was it was a good read uh, I, I'll say that at least um, about sort of the, the contemporary. Um, I guess political situation with with the Alabama uh, senatorial race and how some people are comparing Roy Moore to the Holy Family and and how Mary and Joseph were supposedly separated by age and and you you made some great points so I just kind of wanted to you know have have the three of us kind of you know pull that apart with forks just to talk about yeah I mean right it would be. <laughs> It, it it would be laughable mm. if it weren't so absurd. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it, it's and I mean that's you know 2017 yeah. in a nutshell, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, so for those of you that don't know, if you obviously follow us on Twitter, Sam and I have been talking about this, but um, you know, judge, former judge Roy Moore um, has been accused now by I, th- I think four or five women of sexual assault. the The big story that first hit at I guess the beginning of the week was um, that he had sexually assaulted a 14-year-old when he was in his 30s. And one person, the Alabama State Auditor, came to his defense, Jim Ziegler, and um, basically said, well, he said, take Joseph and Mary. Mary was a teenager and Joseph was an adult carpenter. They became parents of Jesus. As if to justify uh, Roy Moore being a guy in his early 30s, um, trying to you know have uh, intimate relationships with a fourteen-year-old mm-hmm. uh, girl. Yeah, I. Uh, um, so that was the part that I wrote about. It was that was the kind of the breathtaking 
part was the connection um, and the comparison. Uh, I mean, I my you know my my hope is is that most most people who heard the comparison um, focused first on the effort to rationalize predatory behavior. That is, that any kind of defense right. of predatory behavior, no matter what it's being, who's, who's being invoked in the comparison, um, should be scrutinized and rejected. Um, but I felt like there was a little bit I could, I could contribute because, um, because of the, the question of the age of Mary and the age of Joseph. So to point out what's been pointed out by a number of people that the Gospels of the New Testament don't tell us anything about their ages, um, and that the earliest source that does is the uh, is this proto gospel of James, which I had written about. So um, I thought it was a, an opportunity to um, kind of pull out what it was that early Christians were thinking about when they thought about the Holy Family, and. Um, while yes, these sources agree that Joseph and Mary did not have sex, um, and uh, at least the Proto Gospel of James assigns an age to Mary. What I thought the most important part of these of these stories was um, the 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 kind of the unfolding of a of a uh, love relationship between Mary and Joseph, um, and uh, I just I thought that. Uh, it would be important to make that point because I don't, I don't think that we should be trying to compare predatory behavior to to love. Uh, so that's that's what the 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 the, the, the essence of the piece was was that. Um, but I'm I'm curious to know what to hear what you guys think about this. Like what what does it mean that? Um, uh, it seems that there are still a lot of people uh, in Alabama who are sympathetic to to more and sympathetic to this kind of this kind of argument. Yeah, there are, and I, I think that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Do we have another yeah, hour? I think uh, the idea of using religion. I mean, to, in, in the last two days, Roy Moore has sort of retreated into the uh, Christian persecution aspect. Right. Well, I mean, his, his right. first statement yeah. or no, he sent a fundraising email out right two hours after the initial, the initial Washington post story got posted. And in the fundraising email, he basically claimed that he was, um, you know, that this Ooh. was part of some spiritual warfare going on and that was, you know, the forces of evil were trying to attack him uh, and trying to take him down because he's, you know, such a godly man, as his wife would go yeah. on and, to and, say later and he in the today that, press conference you know, he, that they had. He's not going to withdraw until they put his body in a box and that it's it's kind of the anti-Christian uh, left-wing media that's attacking him uh, to, to make this happen. And then yesterday, I uh, just happened to be watching, a, 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 I think it was MSNBC, yeah, Um while I was working and, and there was an interview with his attorney and his attorney said, well, you don't understand our culture here uh, down South where it's okay for older men to right. you know, have relations with, with younger women, as long as there's permission and it's legal, which, it, <laughs> you know, as someone who's, you know, grown up in South Carolina, that's not true, but. Ooh. Well, 
Right, but but you know, one of the amazing things that that um did Roy Moore say it himself? Um or I can't remember if he said I think he said it, but it might have been someone defending. I think it was Roy Moore said that he he would never have done that without the parents' permission. Right. So there's a little caveat thrown in there that like he actually did this and apparently, you know, apparently did this and got parents permissions to date their underage daughters, which is which is also kind of, you know, mind boggling in itself. Yeah, I don't know really what to make of it. I mean, I um, I don't have the expertise to to comment on uh, on the politics in in Alabama. Um, but I, uh, yeah, it just, it just, it, uh, it makes me, uh, anxious. I just, I worry about, um, about this, this kind of, uh, uh, the, the, the defense of predatory behavior becoming, becoming normal, normalized in some parts of our country, uh, while in other parts, the, uh, Me Too campaign seems to really be um, taking hold, and what does this mean for for the for our country going yeah, forward? Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and using and using the Bible to, or using you know the Holy Family of, of all things to uh, justify you know or 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 mm-hmm. you know protect uh, someone who's being predatory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, so I mean, I, I you know I did a little thread on this on Twitter the other day, and kind of connecting it to um, at least my experiences and my knowledge of you know, conservative evangelicalism in America, what you know some people may term fundamentalism, and so there's a lot of it to me that wasn't surprising. I also think that there's a lot of this to that is would not be at all surprising to a lot of women mm-hmm. who've grown up in who grew up in conservative churches. I know uh, Sam Sam's wife Mariana mm-hmm. writes a lot about. Uh, this type of stuff. So, she, you know, she can, she can talk to that with, you know, her experiences know. and experiences of other women that she knows. <laughs> awesome. But you know, I do, I know, I do think, that, I do think there's something to be said about uh, the, the particular subculture that we have that is found in some uh, circles within American evangelicalism of obviously patriarchy, right? And it's a God ordained patriarchy, which I do think is, is an important point to note, right? And, and that you, there's a person in power. I mean, we, we've seen this over and over again um, where, you know, those people are protected, right? So, I, and I do think that one of the, probably mm-hmm. the most important aspect mm-hmm. here is, is the, the power relationship. But I think that, that, that the, the kind of cover-ups, the whitewashing and the defenses um, are exacerbated uh, to some degree by uh, this particular aspect of American evangelical culture where, you know, this purity culture that on the one hand teaches, you know, women that they're, you know, forever blemished if they, you know, ever, you know, uh, lost their purity. But, you know, men are continuously giving, uh, given, you know, multiple chances or second chances, or everybody just kind of turns a blind eye because, you know, you know, that's, that's just who he is. You know, he's just dealing with the struggles of the flesh and, and we can't expect him to be perfect, but, you know, he's such a godly man and he's trying so hard. And, And so I, there's a lot of it that to me was kind of, I'm not going to say textbook because I've mm-hmm. never, I've, I've never seen a defense like we've seen uh, like Ziegler's defense of more, but the kind of immediate um, distrust of anyone making an accusation 
against someone like this that a lot of people in the community are, you know consider to be a godly person the immediate reaction is distrust because you know it's got to be this kind of liberal scheme or what his was um Moore's initial reaction that this is kind of the forces of evil coming at me um and, and you know to not believe the women which is also kind of not surprising in a in a culture that um you know has kind of a divinely ordained um view of women as uh, less than right and um than men so i mean i don't know i mean there's there's a lot of fa- there's a lot more factors to it than just that of course but um i i do think that it's that it's problematic. I, and I, and I think that this kind of going on the stage that it is and, and with 2016 and 2017 and the very public ways in which evangelicals have, I mean, you know, in, in large respects, just, um, abandoned principles that they've, you know, held or claimed to held yeah. have held yeah. for a very long time. Um, I, I think that, I, I think it's kind of amazing, but I would also say, you know, the, you know, I'm no longer in that camp, though I used to be. But I, I kind of what I think you were getting at this point too. We can't look at this and say, "Well, they're the bad ones, and we're kind of free here." But I, I think that you know, this has something to say about our politics and our current political situation, where we um, it is so easy for us to justify um, abhorrent actions uh, by the people that we like and to vilify those same actions. Um, you know, when uh, undertaken yeah, by people that yeah, we don't no, like I that agree. aren't on our I team. Uh, if I could make just one one more plug, maybe for my for my spouse who teaches here at MSU, Absolutely. Um, Amy Derogatis is a scholar of American religious history and published a book uh, a couple years ago called "Saving Sex" on uh, evangelical right. marriage man- manuals, and much of what you're suggesting, yes. Thomas, yes. overlaps with that. Good book. Yeah, so. Uh, right. So maybe another, uh, another podcast episode to explore this. <laughs> yeah, that sounds play. great. Cause I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely, it'd be great. Yeah, we'll, I'm sorry. We'll include that in the show notes, but yeah. I'm sorry, well, Chris, Thomas, thanks so much uh, for on coming on. <laughs> <laughs> but we're, we're professionals kids. Don't try this at home. Um, thanks so much for coming on, Chris. Um, it, it really is a good book. It's a quick read. I mean, it honestly took me like maybe uh, you know two hours to read. You can you can spend a lot more time with it. Uh, you should go back and spend more time with it, and you know look at the notes because there's the, the footnotes. Um, the footnotes at the, the a, end notes. Yes, yes. I I, I will just oh, say. I mean, they're end it. notes. The end notes, which obviously, like, you know, obviously you have to do sometimes, you don't have control over, yeah, but, uh, you know, I want the footnote right there. But anyway, there's, there's a lot there, but it is a, it is a, it's a very accessible book. And, and, and that's something that, I mean, that I definitely want our readers to understand. So as you go into the Christmas season, um, it, it's, you know, it's a good book. You know, we, we only, we don't get paid for anything like this. We don't get any <laughs> kickbacks that we might talk to Chris about that on the post show. Um, you know, we, we do only uh, recommend things that, that we actually uh, like well, and care about and think would be worth your time. So it's a short, easy read and would be kind of or, or I, I think really good read. as you're like, you know, what, what thinking about Christmas coming up. Like this is or perfect for your exactly. you know, Sunday school group for as, as like a book discussion. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm honored and, and humbled by, by the kind yeah, words totally, both totally. of you about the book. Thank you. Thank you very much. So – uh, make sure that you uh, follow Chris on Twitter. Uh, he is at C for Lingos, so C F R I L I N G O S. 
Sam is at Sam Harrelson. I am at Thomas Whitley. You can always find this great podcast at thinking.fm.